0: everybody. Welcome to Coffeehouse Questions. This is Ryan Polly. It has been a fun last month with the different interviews that I have had. I sure hope you have enjoyed them. And if you missed any, I just want to encourage you, go back and check those out. We had two weeks on engaging Muslims and how to evangelize to Muslims. Uh, one week on Fearless Prayer with Craig Hazen, Dr. Craig Hazen, and then in the last week was on Scientism and Secularism with Dr. J.P. Moreland. So it has been a fun, fun month of interviews. I've been super excited. I also have some fun interviews coming up. I'm talking with Dr. Fuz Rana from Reasons to Believe to do an interview on Neanderthals and human origins and the human genomes So if you're interested in science, that is going to be a fun one. Also, a one on deconversion on high school students leaving the faith. So some more interviews coming up, and I really hope that you enjoyed those last few that we had. Now we're going to jump in to a topic that actually I've been having some conversations about recently— And that is the topic of the moral argument for God's existence. And so it's something that I just recently taught my high school students. I also had some interesting conversations with some people online on the moral argument for God's existence. And I want to talk through some of the stuff that I shared and some of those conversations that I had. Before we do, though, I want to give you some announcements. It's been a while since I have let you know what's going on with Coffee House questions, with speaking events, and new things that are happening. And there are a lot of new things. So, Stick with me in a couple minutes, uh, for a couple minutes, as we discuss some of those things. One of the most fun projects, I guess you could say I've started, is the YouTube channel. Now, over the years, I've just posted randomly when I go up to a camp or something and I post a video of some speaking events. And I think I posted like around 20 videos or so over the last two or three years. Just the last two weeks, I started posting my question of the day, the one I've talked about a few times on the show before, uh, that that I answer my high school students' questions every single day in my classroom. I started filming those and putting them on Instagram. Now I've started filming them, editing them just a little bit, and posting them on YouTube. So in the last two weeks, I have posted 12 new videos answering questions in a short two, three minutes. One of them is a little bit longer. Um, but I want to just encourage you to check those out. You can go to youtube.com uh, and then you can type in Ryan Pauly in the search there. And my channel should come up with the new videos, and, and new additions will be coming each and every week since I do the question of the day with my high school students every day. So that has been really fun. I am not a video editor. Uh, I've never really been into that. I've never done it much. I just done little projects here and there. And so this has been fun getting to figure out some sound equipment. And uh, that is actually in the mail coming. And so those videos will improve a little bit. Uh, learning how to do some editing and just fun stuff like that. And then it kind of feels like when I started this podcast a while ago. In fact, Last week was the three-year anniversary for the Coffeehouse Questions podcast. Been going for three years. I believe it was 108 episodes, 39 different interviews. Um, And so celebrating that time, And it just takes me back to when Coffeehouse Questions podcast started of trying to figure out how to do a podcast, how to record the audio, how to edit it, how to post it. And then again, the sound equipment improving from starting off recording just with iPhone earbuds in the little thing that, you know, people walk around and talk just in the earbud, I just use that to record, switching to a little lapel mic, and now having the microphone that I do. So that has been really fun. So if you enjoy watching short two, three-minute videos, you can check out the YouTube channel there, Ryan Pauly, and get that information. Also, some fun talks I want to let you know about. Um, this coming Tuesday on March 5th, I'll be at um, a church down in Long Beach talking with our high school students. I'm really excited about about the existence of God and trying to give them uh, some reasons to believe in God. Later on in the mo- in the month, in the end of March, uh, specific dates March twenty two and twenty three is the Maven conference. Now I won't be speaking at the conference, but I am the training coordinator for Maven, helping out coordinate, make sure the teams that are going on the immersive experiences are trained, and so I will be there at the conference. This is a youth worker conference, so anyone working with youth, parents, high school teachers, pastors, grandparents, uh, anyone engaged in youth or having youth around them, this is for you. It's going to be a great time there at the MAVEN Conference. It's down at Christ Community Church in Laguna Hills, California, March 22nd and 23rd. And then finally, one I'm really excited about is uh, Apologetics Talks, and this is on April 5th down in San Diego. More specifically, it is at the Chinese Bible Church of San Diego in San Diego, California, and it is titled Apologetics Talks, The Engaging Christian. This event is on April 5th, Friday night, from 7.30 to 9.30, and it's going to have three 20-minute presentations. And so one guy is going to be doing a 20-minute presentation on science and faith on how the engaging Christian can engage in both science and faith. Another person is going to be coming in talking about reason and faith, how the engaging Christian can engage in reason and faith. And then finally, I'm going to be giving a 20-minute talk on culture and faith, how Christians can engage in entertainment culture. And so that'll be about an hour having those three talks on reason, science, and entertainment. And then finally, we're then going to sit down for about an hour and do a panel Q&A with the audience. So I think that's an open event. Come on down to San Diego. If you're in the air, I'd love to see you there on April 5th. You can always email contact at coffeehouse questions for more information on that. Now I'm also speaking at uh, my home church uh, doing three weeks, I believe, on the, uh, on our study on the bibliology on, on the doctrine of the Bible. On uh, April 28th, I'll be doing a can we trust the Bible that we have? May 5th, the basic tools for studying the Word and then May 19th on methods for reading and understanding scriptures. Now, hopefully you haven't skipped over the last few bits, because this is one of the most exciting things. This summer, I was scheduled to go on a trip with Maven to Utah on the Biblical Immersive Experience. We were going to be leaving on June 15th through June 22nd, spending the time doing training with Mormons in Utah. The team had to cancel, but Maven has changed the event to where they're doing their first open enrollment trip. And so anyone, any students that are interested and in going to Utah this summer, they can contact me, send in the email at, at com. I'll put you in contact with the right people, and we are trying to get a group of students together that want to go out to Utah this summer to train and engage with Mormons. And so if that's you, you, this is a unique trip in that it's one of the first that is not just a group of high school students from a church or a school that kind of already know each other, but one where anyone can sign up and come along on the trip and do the training uh, on your own or in a group or something like that. And so uh, if you want more information, make sure to contact me. I'm really excited. I really hope some people sign up for that so that trip can happen this summer. Well, I think that is the end of the announcements. So if you have any other questions, con- comments, uh, confusion, anything going on, if you want to send in, you can always send in your information and your questions and your comments into Coffeehouse Questions. You can email them again at contact@coffeehousequestions.com. At Find me at Facebook. Just search Coffeehouse Questions there. On Instagram or Twitter at @ryanpolly3 or you can text in your questions and comments at 714-989-6927. All right, so let's jump into the moral argument for God's existence. Now, this is something that uh, I believe is a very powerful argument. And if you listen to the interview that I had last week with Dr. J.P. Moreland, I think this argument has become even more powerful for me. And one thing that JP mentioned it last week at the very end of our interview, is that he talked about how we can know moral truths or some moral truths more confidently than we can scientific truths. He gave the example of how the electron has changed over the years, of how our understanding of the electron has changed. And so what people thought the electron was, let's say 50 years ago, uh, that electron doesn't exist. A different understanding that we have today of the electron, we would say, exists. But he can easily see that in the next 50 years that science would change and would give us a new understanding of what the electron is. However, he said when it comes to a moral truth, he said, look, I can't think of anything in the next 100 years that would change our understanding that it is wrong to intentionally torture children for fun. That is something that has always been wrong, is wrong now, and will always be wrong. Nothing is going to change that. And for that reason and others, he mentioned we can know moral truths more confidently than we can scientific truths because science is changing frequently. Our understanding and our knowledge is growing, whereas that nothing is going to change those moral truths. And this is one thing I think can make the moral argument for God's existence so powerful. And, and in short, you can set up the argument a few different ways. One way that it is in my high school book that I teach my students, it goes, if objective moral values and duties exist then God exists. Objective moral values and duties exist, therefore God exists. It can also be put in the negative, God does not exist, objective moral values and duties would not exist. Objective moral values and duties exist, therefore God exists. But the whole argument rests on this idea that there is objective right and wrong. Now, when you start to have a conversation on this topic, you start to get some pushback. About what does it mean to have objective wrong? Uh, in a conversation I recently had online with someone, I said, "Well, you think that's wrong, but is it really wrong?" And then he began to mock me. "Well, you don't what re- wrong versus really wrong? What do you mean by that? That makes no sense." And what I mean is, is it wrong? Just is it your opinion? Is it just your preference that you don't like something wrong? Like, man, I, I you know I'd say it's wrong to eat coffee ice uh, to eat chocolate ice cream. I don't like it, or is it actually wrong? Like it would be actually wrong to murder an innocent human being without justification. That's what murder would be, right? There's something different saying, I don't like it. I think that's wrong versus something actually being wrong. And so when you get in this conversation, sometimes that clarification needs to be made of what we actually mean by objective versus relative. Relative morality can be done in, in quite a few different ways. It can be relative to the culture Where one government, one culture, one group of people have chosen the rules that work for them, and that's different than a culture. And we have aspects like this, right, where in the United States, we drive on the right side of the road, and other countries, they drive on the left side of the road, right? So from culture to culture, you can do some things differently. That would be relative. That changes, You also have even from state to state. Some laws are different from state to state. It changes. And you can even have what is even more relative is I say relativism, that whatever I say changes. And that can change from me to you. That it's not even as big as the culture, but it's as small as the individual. And so what we want to do when having this conversation is we want to ask, okay, what are you talking about when you say that something is wrong? And often... It is the God of the Bible that is being accused of doing wrong things. Often when you get into conversations with unbelievers and especially kind of, you know, skeptics that are, that are attacking Christianity, it's, it's talking about all of the evil and terrible things that have happened in the Old Testament. And that was, again, one of the conversations I had where someone commented and said, look, the Bible is full of totally immoral things. And I said, well, how do you judge that as immorality? do you believe in objective morality? He says, no, morality changes from culture to culture. I said, okay, so then the culture of the Bible is different. How can you say that they're wrong? Well, I, I don't like it. Okay, that's different. You just don't like it. You can't say it's wrong, but it is wrong. Well, I agree with you that, it, you know, if someone is 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 doing, is doing racist or engaged in slavery, that would be wrong. But how can you call it wrong if you're saying it's just a different culture? This comes up a lot when, when discussing, you know, for example, slavery of the 1800s America, Versus uh, now, right? We don't have slavery now. It is not legal as it was before, but it was legal. If you're going to say that morality changes based on your government, well, then it was legal at that time, then would it have been moral? And when they said, well, no, it wasn't, but, but we've changed or it was, but we've changed. And this can be very telling to help you understand what the person is talking about. Now, recently there was a debate on the topic of abortion. It was between Dr. Willie Parker and Dr. Mike Adams at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And I'll post the link to the video on coffeehousequestions.com. I really would encourage you to watch that debate. But what was interesting is that Dr. Willie Parker claimed to be a Christian and is an abortion doctor and said that he had performed between twenty to 30,000 abortions. And he said that, look, if you call the cops on me while I'm performing abortion, they will not arrest me because it's not illegal. He says, we live in a pluralistic culture where you cannot force your morality on anyone else. It's legal. It's not wrong. I won't get arrested. And I wish I could have been there to just ask the question of, does he believe that morality changes or is based on what is legal? Because I agree that, yes, we don't just force our morality on someone. It's not Christian morality or something else or my morality that you force on someone. But when we're talking about this argument, what we're talking about is the morality. We are talking about the morality that is self-evident, the morality that is built into our universe. It is the morality that we have discovered, not invented. This is a big point. And I know I'm kind of jumping around a little bit as things kind of pop into my mind, but I hope, hopefully you are following me is that oftentimes what is said is, well, then who gets to create morality? No one gets to create it. We don't just get to make up objective morality. It's not objective if we're just making it up. Morality is not created. It is discovered. It's just like saying we did not create gravity. We maybe created a language to describe gravity, but we did not create gravity. Gravity was discovered. Mathematics, mathematics were discovered. We created a language to be able to express it and talk about it, but no one invented math. No one invented the fact that two plus two is four. That is something that we discovered about our world. And so what we're saying with the moral argument is that there is objective morality that is discovered. The idea that it is wrong to intentionally torture a child for fun is wrong. That's not something that was decided by anyone. That is not something that was created or invented. That is something that we have discovered. It is something that is self-evident, that you look at something evil and you just know that it is wrong. And so I was interested, I wish I could have asked Dr. Willie Parker that simple question of, do you think, as you're saying right now, you can perform abortions because they're not illegal? No one is going to come arrest you. It's not wrong. Do you think that morality is based on legality? If so, then when something is legal, you have to say it is morally good, or at least more that it's not wrong. And then what do you do in the times, for example, when slavery was legal, when segregation was legal, when it was promoted in culture? Was it right? Was it good? And the interesting thing here is that if you're going to say that morality is dependent on culture that what is legal is morally right and good, then to be a cultural reformer, then to push against that culture would make you the evil, wrong person. And would we say that all of the cultural reformers throughout the last century, the people who stood against racism and segregation, and even today the people are standing against the evils of our culture, would we say that they are evil? I don't think so. That seems to go against, again, everything that we understand. And so it's interesting as you talk about this argument and and trying to make the case and trying to help the person understand what you mean by morality, what you mean by objective morality. Now, another interesting aspect. So, well, let me just put it this way. Let me go back. That's point number two, right? So the first one, if objective moral values and duties exist, then God exists. Second, objective moral values and duties exist, right? And it's interesting. And I think it's important that we use the term objective moral values and duties, What we're saying is that there's objective moral values, that some things are just true, they're good and wrong. And then also duties, there are objective moral duties, things that you should and should not do. This is a claim that is put on you. This is a responsibility. These are oughts, moral oughts. You ought to do this. You ought not murder. You should not murder someone. You should act in certain ways. And so this is actually calling for you to live in a certain way. And personally, I think this is where a lot of the problems happen is that we live in a culture where people don't want to be told how to live and how to act. They simply don't. They want to do things for themselves. And the moment they have some sort of higher authority telling them how they have to live, that can cause some pushbacks. But if you think about it in this way, If you truly understand who that higher authority is, now this is apart from the argument, but it's a recent conversation again that I had, that what we understand is, look, the higher authority in this case is not a dictator. It's not this evil person who is using his or her authority to rule and to build up their own pride. But when it comes to at least Christianity, the higher authority is a God who loves us so deeply and gave his life for us that the moral obligations that God puts on our life is because that is what is actually better for us, not just for him. And when we understand that, when we truly trust the authority, it's like, you know, I think about my parents. I had good parents. I had wonderful parents. Now there are times I definitely push back as all kids do, but there are other times where the parents say to do something and you just do it because you know, they know what's best. And I hope as they're, if they're listening that there were a few times that that happened, <laughs> but that the, you trust the, the, the fact that the person telling you to do the thing is actually good and what they're doing is for your best interest. And so you just do it, right? That is very different when we think about who the higher authority is. So when it comes to the moral argument, we have these objective values and we have objective moral duties. We have things that we should and should not do. So when we look at the second premise of the argument, that objective moral values and duties exist, this is something I think that when properly understood, it is very, very hard to reject. And if someone is going to reject it, I honestly don't know what else can be done other than pray for the person. If they are going to say that it is not wrong to intentionally torture and abuse children for fun, um, that is very difficult. They're saying, oh, yeah, that there's something in the future that would make that right then that is very, very difficult to have that conversation. It it happens very rarely. So when we get to the first argument, the first premise, here's where I have a few examples that I want to give you. That If if objective moral values and duties exist, then God exists. Well, why is that? Well, if you have an objective moral standard, then you have to give uh, an account for that standard. And this is easy to say that, look, when we look at actions, for example, it is better to love than it is to hate. Why do we say that love is better than hate? What are we judging this against? What are we comparing this against in order to know that love is better than hate? Well, love helps someone and hate hurts the person. Okay. Ask the same question. Why is it better to help than it is to hurt? Where do we get this idea that helping is better than hurting? Why isn't hurting better than helping? Now, this can get confusing. And so when it comes to my students, I always flip it and I start to use numbers instead of words because numbers are just easier. And so I say, OK, 91 versus 85. One team has 91 points. Another team has 85 points. Who wins? And oftentimes they'll say, well, 91. Why? Well, 91's better. And I say, is it always better? Well, no. 91's, OK, when would 91 not be better? Well, if you're playing golf. Good. All right. So golf, 85 is better. Basketball, 91 is better, right? And so in order to know between 91 and 85, which one is better and which one is worse, you have to know by what rules you are playing. What is the game that you are playing? Now, I always find it interesting. I normally break out cribbage in my classroom. And and I set out cribbage because it's a game that no one, most young people have never played before and they don't even know what it is, right? So they look at it and they're like, I don't even get it, right? It's a wood board with some circles and holes and then some pegs and a deck of cards, And I go, okay, you guys have no idea how to play this game? Play it. Make up your own rules. And virtually almost every time, a student will grab a peg, put it in the finish hole and say, look, I won. I made it to the finish. And then the next team, if they're smart, they go, no, actually, if you hit the finish first, you lose, right? And it turns into chaos. And the whole point is if you don't have an objective rule book, then each team can make up whatever rules they want. And how can you say that you actually won? Why cross the line first? Well, crossing the line first means you lose, and it just turns into chaos. If you're going to play the game well, you have rules that both teams have agreed to, and then you can play the game better. You at least know the rules by which you're playing. You can know what actions then are better actions and which ones are worse. When you're playing football, well, do you need to catch the ball or do you need to kick the ball or do you need to throw the ball or, you know, do you play, you know, is it like soccer where you kick it around with your feet or if it touches the ground, are you out, right? There's so many different rules to games that students often get this idea. And so when it comes to 91 versus 85, we have to know what rules we're playing in the game in order to know which action is better. When you give the sport, now you know. It's the same thing in a test. How do you know that a te- on a test, a 97 is better than an 82? Because a 97 is closer to the perfect standard of a 100, right? In most tests, 100 is the highest. And so 97 is better than an 82. A 2% is terrible because zero is the absolute worst. And so we have this standard by which we can measure these things. And you could keep going on and on with examples in the ACT. The 36 is the highest. If you get a 33, you're doing amazing, Right. We get this idea. So when it comes to 91 and 85, you have to know why, what standard you are playing the game in order to know if a 91 or 85 is better. So now let's go back to our words instead of our numbers. Is hate better than love or is love better than hate? Is helping better than hurting or is hurting better than helping? We can't know unless we know by what rules we are playing the game. And are these rules actually rules that hold us accountable? So when it comes to God, God gives us the standard. God's nature is that perfect standard by which we can judge all actions and we can say, here is the perfect view of love. The closer you are to this, the more loving, the further you are, the less loving you are. As C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity, he says, as as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? That is such a good question of, look, if we're going to say that this is straight, well, we have to know what ultimately what straight is. What does straight mean? And have that understanding. And if we don't have that perfect standard, if we don't have a standard that is above human beings, how could we possibly say that one action is better than another? Now, in the last few minutes we have, what will often happen at this point is that you say, look, without God, there is no standard. We can't know right from wrong. And then if you're talking with the atheist, oftentimes what happens is then you get upset and they say, so you're saying that I'm an immoral person. I can be moral without believing in God. And the answer to that is absolutely true. You can. What we're not saying is that you can't be moral if you don't believe in God. And we don't say that atheists don't know morality. I'm saying that as an atheist, as a Christian, as any person in this world, you know that torturing innocent children for fun is wrong. The question is, why? And when it comes to this argument, what it's saying is that atheists cannot justify why that is wrong. They cannot justify morality. They can know morality, but it doesn't explain why that standard of rightness exists. Now, a lot of the people that I talked to over the last few weeks about this topic would say, well, it's just based on human empathy. Why is empathy good? Why is, why, why is it good to have empathy? I agree. And they go, are you saying it's not good? Well, no, of course not. I agree that empathy is good, that we know that being empathetic, we know that, that caring for one another is good. But why? What is the standard that we judge right and wrong? And I love how Frank Turek puts this. Frank Turek, the apologist with cross-examined, he says that you can know what's in a book and deny that there's an author, but there would be no book unless there was an author, right? You can read a book, know everything that's in the book, know about the book, and say, no one wrote it. I don't believe that anyone wrote it. And you can still know everything in it. Absolutely. But if there was no author, then there would be no book to read. And so in the same way, atheists can know morality. They can know what is right and wrong. And deny that there's a God, but there would be no right and wrong unless there was a God. It is God that gives us the perfect standard. Now, they might disagree and say, well, how do you know which God and all that kind of stuff? Well, that's true. This argument doesn't necessarily give you the Christian God. But here's all you have to agree on. Is it wrong, objectively wrong, to torture innocent children for, wrong, for fun? Is, has that always been wrong? Is that wrong for all people? Is there anything that will change this in the future? No. Okay, so where do we then get this idea that it's wrong to torture children for fun? What makes that wrong? Laws need lawgivers. In Germany, driving on the Audubon, you can't speed because there is no speed limit. You can only get in trouble. You only get tickets if there's a law that you are breaking and it's human beings or people that create those laws. And so if there are laws like do not murder, do not torture innocent children for fun— that apply to all of human beings that are not created by humans but are discovered by humans then there has to be a lawgiver that is above human beings and that r- r- sums up the moral argument for God's existence. Now, there's so many other objections and ways that we could talk about this. And so if if you do have comments, if you do have other objections or other thoughts on this, please send them in. I can always discuss those in another episode in the future. But hopefully this idea gives you a, a different or a fresh perspective on this argument for God's existence, that there has to be that standard. And without the standard, without the rule book, we cannot know which action is better or worse. We do know some actions are better and worse. Therefore, there has to be a rule book. Or there has to be a standard giving us those rules, and that would be God. Well, thank you so much for listening to Coffeehouse Questions. I hope you've enjoyed all the interviews lately, and the, I hope you enjoy the ones coming up soon, so keep on listening, and if you love this, I would really appreciate you share it with the friends. It really helps the word get out there. Also, if you can go to iTunes or your podcast listening app, just give it a like, a rating. It'll take 10 seconds. It's really easy, really fast, and that'll help get this out to more people as well. Go to mavenconferences.com and check on the Maven Adult Conference here at the end of March, and then also. So be aware and be thinking about that Utah trip this summer that you can come on. Thank you so much. I hope that you have a wonderful and a blessed week. Let me know uh, any of the comments and questions you have. Come to Coffee House Questions for all of the information that you need and go to that YouTube channel and check out all the new videos that are coming out. Thank you so much for listening. Have a blessed weekend and week. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Polly. Won't hesitate to follow. Your love will guide my.